This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Are you taking the right steps to boost your health and well-being? Could one of the best solutions be found just outside your back door? As the COVID pandemic throws the spotlight on our nation's health, we're investigating what role gardening can play. Hello, I'm Lucy, and welcome to today's episode. And to help uncover the benefits of being an active gardener, who else to ask but Monty Don, a long-time champion of gardening's restorative powers, plus, of course, the nation's head gardener as lead presenter of Gardener's World, and a regular contributor to the pages of our magazine on these very issues. Today, you'll hear from Monty how gardening has helped him through some darker times, and why he's optimistic about the future. But first, I asked him, how does gardening make him feel? Well, it, I mean, that, that's a very simple and a very complex question, um, or at least a simple question, a complex answer. It, because by and large, I don't think about how it makes me feel. I just feel how I feel, and therefore I don't deconstruct it. So it's, it's the serious answer is, how does gardening change the way I feel? Or how does it stop me feeling certain things? So that if I am in any way um, under par, um, either anxious or depressed or just feeling bowed down by the weight of the world, then gardening is, the, above all else, is the thing that removes that. that, that and it is replaced with, I suppose the trendy word would be mindfulness. In other words, a total immersion in the present. And as any gardener knows, you know, that might be wet, it might be cold, it might be boring, it might be repetitive. But the point is, because it's always part of a bigger picture, it 
it puts the whole world in perspective uh, uh, on one level. So if you're weeding a border, you don't necessarily want to do the weeding, the hand weeding, and it's a bit muddy and it's a bit sticky and, and the rain is starting to come. But you want the border to be weeded and you know it's part of a plan. And without ever consciously thinking it, I think that that sets your mindset into other problems in life. You know, you, you okay, there is this thing that's not good or I'm feeling pretty crappy today, but it'll pass. Or, or, it's, or, or even perhaps more relevantly, there's a reason for it. And, and that's fine. You know, that's okay. That's part of the, the state of things. And I think that most of our uh, mental health problems, which is really what feelings come down to, are to do with not seeing the bigger picture or not putting yourself in a bigger compass, either becoming over- um, burdened with your own problems or bound up in your own world. And, and anybody who has ever dealt with depression certainly knows that one of the features of it is solipsism, is, is this sort of hugely unhealthy uh, self-centeredness. And, and you're aware of it, but you can't control it. So, so anything that gets you out and puts you in context and, and with weather, with earth, with plants that have a timescale um, is a leveller. It's a balancer out. That's a very long answer to a very simple question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's 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 a great it's a great place to start. And I and I guess you know we can go sort of right back to your first experiences, I suppose, and and ask you know did you did you always know it was going to be gardening? No, you know well, how does it differ to other activities? Was there anything else um, it could have been? No, I didn't always know it was going to be. I was I was born into a household with a large garden. We had a five-acre garden in Hampshire, which my mother inherited from her father and her father inherited from my grandfather, who built it, built a house in a field in Hampshire in the 1870s. So it, by the time I arrived on the scene, it, it was established. It was where we lived. It was, and um, at a very early age, the the regular help we had in the garden, he, he hurt his back and that was it. So we didn't have any more and there was no other help. So from about the age of seven, me and my brothers, and it wasn't just me, it was very much a family thing. We were all dragooned into gardening. And it, and it was a question of dragooning. I mean, there was no question, there was absolutely no question of you will learn to love this or this is fascinating or look at that plant, isn't it wonderful? It was mow that lawn, clip those edges, turn that compost, weed these things. And we did it as part of the household chores. I mean, it was it was absolutely in line with feeding the chickens, with taking the dogs for walk, with chopping wood, with doing the washing up, with cleaning the cars, making your bed, you know, all the things that, that most children experience in some form or other. And I did it in that spirit until I was about 16, 17. But by then, by default, I'd actually learned quite a lot of gardening. I'd done a kind of rather brutal apprenticeship. And it wasn't creative gardening. There was nothing creative about it at all. But for example, I absolutely knew how to run a vegetable garden. Um, I knew how to make compost. I knew what was a weed and what wasn't a weed. I knew how to prune various things. There were the mechanics of gardening and none of the poetry. And and this is something I've often written about and talked about. But I had a a, a sort of Damascene moment when I was 17, when I was... I'd been expelled from a couple of schools and I was sort of fairly, 
fairly feckless youth, you know. I mean, in a way that in the early 70s, I tried very hard to be. And I came home from my new school, um, which is a day school, and got home, made a cup of tea, and did what by then was natural, which was go outside to do some gardening, do my bit for the household. And it just happened that March day, I decided to sow some carrots. And we were brought up, it was Hampshire, very chalky soil, very thin chalky soil. And I can remember very clearly um, preparing the soil. And it was one of those early spring evenings, or late afternoons, when, when you just start for the first time in the year to feel some warmth. And you take your jersey off, you know, it's, and there is, you roll up your sleeves and you just feel some sunshine on you. And you can see some midges, you know, in the air. And, and there's a real sense, although we, although you know there could be snow and ice, spring is absolutely on its way. And I remember preparing the ground and drawing a drill and, and pouring the seed in my hand and suddenly being overwhelmed by a moment of really what can be described as bliss in the sense that, I mean, I can intellectualise it because at the time I I didn't at all, but but... It was the absence of desire. It was the complete absence of desire because I had everything I wanted. In that moment, I had everything I ever wanted. And not just in a sort of, sort of colloquial way, I mean, literally. There was, I could have died at that moment and I would have died a happy person because I, it, life was complete. Well, that, that was pretty unexpected. <laughs> Came out of the blue. I thought, yeah, that's a strange thing. And that night I had a dream where, and as I said, I've often talked about this, I, my, I put my hands in the ground and my fingers grew as roots. And, you know, deep, 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 deep into the soil. And I woke up feeling very refreshed and happy and content. And ever since then, I mean, clearly it's a metaphor, but, but ever since then, by getting my hands in the soil, and through the process of, of nurturing the soil and nurturing plants, I nurture myself. And I, you know, we, we can trivialize that by saying it's my happy place, or we can, as I prefer to do, say I found in that moment the absolute sweet spot, the moment of truth. You know, it was the, it was the one thing that I mainlined into. Oh, you know, it was much more complicated than that because if this was a novel, I would give up everything. I would have applied to horticultural college and I would have become a gardener and lived happily ever after. It wasn't like that because back in 1971 or whenever it was, gardening was still a chore. It was still something I did for the household. But there was something in it for me for that. For the first time, I was getting something from it. Uh, and, and that's never gone extraordinarily revelatory at such a young age yeah. and having had actually relatively a sort of brutal yeah. introduction to it. I mean, yeah. I know I've read you. you I mean, I think it'd be fair to say your mother yeah, was she quite was. formidable. She was, she, was, she, was, <laughs> she, she was old school in a very, I mean, and in fact, I met someone the other day, my age, who I grew up with, but, but sort of hadn't seen for 50 years. And we were talking about our childhood and he said, boy, your parents were something else. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, they were famous for being strict and old-fashioned. Um, and we're talking about the late 50s, early 60s, when everybody was strict and old-fashioned. You know, I mean, they, they were really, truly <laughs> Victorian. Um, 
which of course, when you're on the receiving, well, I mean, I say receiving end of it as though it's all bad. There were good things about it. You know, there was it wasn't it wasn't devoid of love. It was just strict, really strict. Um, you, you're unaware of it because that's that's life. You know, every that's that's everything. Yeah. But it must have shaped your relationship with gardening. So, you know, it's sort of extraordinary that you have you came out of it relatively young. You're still in your teens and thinking, actually, gardening is something very well, positive because you had this but very it, but strict it was, formal it was a it was training. confusing because we now um, really encourage young gardeners, or at least I hope we do. I hope anybody listening to this who's sort of under 25 feels that they are wanted and welcome and, and you know, they are our future. Um, we now sort of, you know, there are people winning gold medals at Chelsea in their 20s and things. Back in 1971, 72, uh, I literally didn't know another human being that was interested in gardening other than my two brothers. Um, nobody, but nobody of my age had any interest whatsoever. Um, and also gardening in the media and also in, in commercially simply wasn't geared to people who didn't have access to gardens or didn't own their own garden. I mean, it was it was a grown-up activity in every sense of the word. Unless you were a sort of botany geek or something like that, and, and there was that way in, but that, I was never that. Um, it was gardening that I liked, growing things. Not, not that's how I, I came to gardening through soil, not through plants. Um, and that was what was unusual about my interest. But it wasn't really until I met Sarah that I met a kindred spirit who I could even talk to about this. I mean, what it, what it did enable me to do was that through my student years, I worked as a gardener um, to earn money. So, you know, I, I went and worked for six months in a garden in France. I um, All the time I was at university, every Saturday uh, during term time, I, there was one garden in particular I used to go and you know, very ordinary stuff. Dig their garden, mow their lawn, cut their hedges. It was This was not glamorous. This was not working in the botanic garden. Um, but I had the confidence to do that. I felt completely comfortable doing that. Um, but it was a solitary yeah, pleasure yeah, or solitary yeah. pursuit. And I feel that that possibly, did that change when you met Sarah or yeah. at another time? When did it flip for you from, from well, being that well, solitary Inner, inner world to maybe something Well, do you outer. know, I don't think it ever has. That's the truth. Uh, I think that gardening is most important to me as a solitary activity, which said somebody who's on television speaking to millions of people every week. Uh, uh, and, you know, I've always said, n slightly provocatively, because you know me well enough to know that occasionally, occasionally I can be like that. Uh, you, provocative. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I am an amateur gardener. Um, and what I mean by that is I am proud and want to preserve my independence from any kind of profession or institution. Uh, I, I garden primarily for myself and my family. Now, meeting Sarah was wonderful because it was a kindred spirit. It was someone who I could speak the same language and we... Very quickly, um, we would go and visit gardens together. That, I mean, that was something we did in our 20s. But again, nobody else did. You know, how in the 80s, certainly the early 80s, how many 23, 24, 25-year-olds were systematically visiting National Trust gardens? Not many. 
We never. And if they were, they weren't there the same day as us, I can tell you. You know, the, and I often joke saying that we lowered the average age from down to about 70. But, but it's true. The average age of the, of the garden visitor in the 80s when we were going was, was the age I am now or older. And so we then became a little team and we had our garden in London that we loved. Um, and we, we used to, we worked really hard and we, we started the business. So we didn't have a lot of time for at least half the year. But the half the year that we could garden, which was pretty much sort of um, Feb, March through till October, November, um, we spent every spare minute in it. And, and our great thing were Sundays, we never left the garden. You know, we, we would, and, and the garden and the house would be a complete tip and there'll be wheelbarrows in the kitchen and all this sort of thing. Uh, and I, we never shared that. I mean, it was, it was not a communal thing. It was ours. And then we would go out into our fashion world and we never talked about the garden because there was no one to talk to. You know, it wasn't, we weren't being secretive. We was, it was a bit like the, if somebody now, I don't know, had a passion for ice hockey or lacrosse, say, which are perfectly respectable, good things to do, but just not widely shared. You know, it was the same idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you've written a lot, actually, about the, that sort of clear relationship between a healthy mm. gardener and the health mm. of mm. the gardener. And I wondered if, do you, do you look back and see each of your gardens as a sort of reflection at the time on, on, your, on your state of health? Is, is that too, is that well, too trite to say? Yes, to think it is, that, Lucy. Uh, <laughs> I think, well, certainly when we were at Hanbury's, when I wrote The Prickety Bush, a chaotic, slightly manic, uh, destructive garden... <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, I, I, it was it was it was an extraordinary thing. It was a young man going berserk in a garden, um, which was a very was rather a wonderful thing, really. Uh, you know, it had a kind of heroism about it that was destructive. But but there you go. So yes, yes, I see that. I haven't made that many gardens. I mean, we made the London Garden, which was it was good. I look back at pictures of it and I think, yeah, that was that was a good piece of work. You know, that was, it, it was good. Sarah and I have, and it's really important that it is always Sarah and I, have always been very comfortable with, with being ambitious, with taking on difficult problems that, you know, we've, we've bought houses that are complete ruin. And we think, oh, that's interesting. And other people, I mean, we have, we have a great friend who lives in Papua New Guinea. And she came, and, and you know, and, and I've actually written about it, so I can talk about it. We have a small farm in the Black Mountains in Wales which we bought 15 years ago. And it was a ruin, a real ruin. And uh, we, we had this friend who had come over from New Guinea and we see her about once every five years and said, look, you must come and see this fabulous thing we've got. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's so exciting. And she looked at it and she almost burst into tears saying, what are you doing? You know, you're insane. This is a disaster. And all we saw was just this fabulous opportunity. And I think... If there are two of you, you can do that. If you're entirely on your own, it, it takes a lot more. So, and Sarah and I, and I think I've said this to you before, we have this basic principle in gardens and in houses that we both have a veto. So we both have to agree in order to do it. 
And if one doesn't agree, however badly the other wants to do it, it can't happen. And the beauty of that is, is A, it means that you agree. <laughs> and B, you have to argue your case. You know, if you really badly want to do it, what's stopping it? What, you know, what's the problem? What, why isn't it happening? So you have to stand back and say, okay, there is clearly a problem here. Let's try and resolve it. I want this to happen. How can I make it happen? It's not going to happen by bullying. So I need to persuade or reason or change my view. You know, I need to come out. And it, it's a very good life lesson, actually, that in from, from gardening, because we have this about every plant almost, is it's, if you're negotiating at all, you've got to find out what the other person wants rather than make them have what you want. And until you do, it's not going to happen. Or at least it's not going to happen, succeed. It's not going to last. And, and that's, that's, that's entirely from, from gardening, really, you know, with somebody else. And the ambition is great because ambition says, sounds like it's a time where you're feeling very positive. You can't be ambitious when you're not. No, at your I think best. if you're depressed, I mean, if you're clinically depressed, obviously you don't do anything, or at least you don't, you do everything badly. I mean, in my case, my form of depression is not sort of catatonically staying in bed and for, for weeks. It's just sort of everything getting worse. <laughs> it's, 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 it's he roaring with laughter. Uh, it's, it's, it's just almost literally everything getting worse. Your health, um, just sort of how you do things, what you do, your relationships, uh, you, you know, you, you, it becomes, life becomes a downward spiral. And the worst thing about it is you're aware of it. This is not, you know, you are doing it and you are aware that it is harming everybody else and you, and yet you go on doing it. And, and so that becomes a part of it. Um, I have found for myself, I mean, that there are a lot of things that are helpful. One of the great things that has been really helpful is, is traveling um, and seeing other gardens and being with other people and the discipline of travel. Someone says, call time is 7.30 or the bus is leaving at six in the morning and you have to be there. So you just have to be there and that's that, you know. Um, or you are interviewing somebody and this is their name and this is what it's about and you're thinking, you know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to ask. Or even uh, more seriously, I don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about your garden. I don't care about television. I don't care about books. I don't care. But you have to pretend to care. And actually pretending to care is quite a good way of really caring. You know, it's cognitive therapy. And I, for me, getting out into the garden at any level, I mean, literally putting my boots on and walking into the garden is a step in the right direction. Um, I, I mean, I've said this before, we have chickens and they're at the end of the garden on a really grim December day, if you're feeling bad, physically walking to the end of the garden and feeding the chickens and walking back is not much of an achievement, but it's actually quite important because you've had to go outside, you've had to look after something other than yourself, you've had to do it at a time when they want it, not when it suits you, um, and you are reconnecting. You, there is weather and there is light, and, and it's pretty minimal, but it's something. And it's the same in the garden, you know. 
And you're bringing in there, you know, one thing I think is so important in terms of our relationship with nature and our gardens, which is the yeah. seasons. Yeah. It's constantly changing. I, I have no idea how life would be. I couldn't imagine life uh, without the seasons that we have, you know. So we're so lucky in this country, I think, that, that we have that. And that, I think, for you is important because I know how tough yeah, I was gonna say, is, I could, uh, in particular uh, for you. I, I am very, very <laughs> responsive to light um, on a macro <clears throat> and a micro level. So um, I love waking up when it's light. You know, I would never have curtains in any bedroom I slept in. Um, I want the light streaming in at dawn. Um, and uh, and in winter, on a, on a, uh, a macro level, when it, when it goes, then, then I certainly go too. <laughs> and I would very happily decamp sort of the end of October uh, to somewhere where there was sunshine. I don't care about heat. I mean, I'm quite happy for it to be cold. Um, but I, I would much rather have some light, yeah. Uh, I, f- I find northern skies uh, are tough, tough. But you're here very often, I know. I know, mm. I know obviously there's often a, a chance to escape, but you are here. So what is getting you through at that time? I mean, you mentioned feeding the chickens. It's... I mean, it's partly to do with this garden. If we have years like last year, it's so wet here and so sort of unconducive to gardening. I mean, there are jobs that have to be done. You know, there are leaves to be collected and plants to be put away and and, and tulips. One of the things actually, it sounds trivial, but a really important thing that that matters to me is um, all the bulbs and pots, for example. I mean, as you know, I have help in the garden here and I couldn't couldn't possibly do it without help. But there are, I very, very rarely delegate planting. I like to do as much of the planting as I possibly can which is 90% of it, because it's important to me. It's that old thing of the soil, you know. And and tulips in November are really important. But, and it's what you were talking about, it's season. So A, it's getting out, doing it. Some, and, and as you know, we grow a lot of tulips in pots, so there are thousands to be planted up. It takes days and days. Um, and we have to prepare the soil, and you get the grit, and you sieve it, and you you know leaf mold. It's it a palaver involved. Um, and then there's that thing: is okay. Now we want to see you grow. So it's November, and it's grey, and there is December, which is going to be even greyer. Um, but it won't be long before those shoots appear. Usually about the end of January, early February. And actually. I really get huge pleasure from all our early bulbs, the very early irises we have that start to appear by mid-January. So for me, once you get to Boxing Day, you get Christmas out the way. <laughs> uh, and I'm actually not as screw. I like Christmas. I'm, I'm very happy with Christmas, but I don't like, I, I'm happy up till, I'm unhappy up till Christmas Eve. You know, I, I really dislike it. It's really, it's really bad. Uh, but then we have Christmas and that's family and I like mm. that and I like the cooking and, you know, it's lovely. And then on Boxing Day, I sort of felt, okay, right, let's get to grips with you. Let, let's, let, let enough, enough of this. Um, I'm not going to be beaten. I'm not going to be ground down by you lot anymore. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to fight back. And, you know, I mean, that's, it, it it's still dark at five o'clock and it's still uh, cold, miserable, but there are things to do. And, and I, 
it's really important to me that, you know, I always sow chilies in early January. And if I haven't, I always sow some more sweet peas. And so I'm sowing and I'm, I'm preparing seed compost and I'm just, things are getting going. Things are starting. And that's, so it's only really those two months. Um, I used to find October very difficult, but I seem not to anymore. It seems to be getting better. I, mean, I think it's because I travel more. You know, I'm just, I just get away more. I spend a lot of time on my own. You know, I, I, I write on my own, this desk. I, I, as I just said, I garden on my own a lot. Uh, I take the dogs for a walk on my own. Um, I would say I spend at least half of my waking hours on my own. And the other half, to a greater extent, with the family or whatever. But by far, my sort of most social time is on a shoot. And I've had none of that, of course, this year at all. Well, you bring us on to the pandemic, which not, nothing, no one can avoid that this year. But gardening has mm. soared in interest. People have been drawn mm. to it for all sorts of reasons, for health. I mean, health has mm. been a huge mm. driving factor. And I think it will continue to be this, this uncertainty, obviously, over you know, our health, our well-being, obesity levels and so on. So gardening is very much has, is an answer. But you know, do you think gardening can ever be taken seriously by the medical profession? I think, I think it is beginning an answer. to be. I, I, I mean, I really do, yeah. The answer is yes, I do. Um, a, as part of a package, you know, you're, you're no, I think that this idea of gardening being the panacea that is going to solve all problems uh, is is both untrue and unwise because that, that you know it has to include. It's much more complex than that. But I think that more and more people understand, for both uh, physical and mental well-being, that being outdoors engaged in looking after other things, which for most people, the best opportunity are plants rather than animals, um, that has a rhythm of seasons and life. And sharing that in some form, either either in some communal activity or with a family, or it could just be food. You know, you could just grow something and then share the end result. Is it's very nourishing and it is really supportive of all kinds of other things that are going on. It, it, it makes people feel better about themselves. Um, it gives people more confidence. It gives, it just, you see, I, I think the key to it is it doesn't take a lot to reset the switches. I think one of the problems with A, mental health and B, modern life, is the switches all get turned the wrong way. It's not like you're shooting down. The, and if you can just reset them, reset the signals on the track lights, you then set off in the right way. You're actually not very far apart. You know, the, the, the two roads don't diverge very widely, except at extremes. But for most people, it's not a huge amount to make a bad situation, A, tolerable, and B, actually okay, all right. And, and one of the things you you learn as you get older, that okay is quite good. You know, okay is okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. That, you know, you are going to fail at all kinds of things and, and you're not going to be Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful. You're not going to, to change the world because the world is changing anyway all the time all around you. And that, that happiness is measured in cups of tea and birdsong and, 
and you know, a child as um, a wonderful producer, I worked with on Real Gardens. I don't know if you remember that we did, uh, and John Percival, and 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 he died very sadly. Uh, and at his funeral, he had written a letter which was read out, basically saying, "Don't take for granted all those little things because that's all there is." He said, "It's the little dog." I remember this line. He said, it's the little dog wagging its tail absurdly jauntily as it goes down the street. And, you know, that image, that is a good life. That is happiness. And I think that's what people tap into when they go into the garden. It's the robin. You know, it's it's that first flower, the sweet pea or whatever it might be. Um and that's deep and profound and rich and wise, as well as being just a little something. And I think what, what the pandemic has brought out is that more people have suddenly said, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I just, I think that's all it is. I, I, I really Now, the, the big question will be, is will it last? Is that an emergency response to an emergency situation? a kind of wartime response? Or has it clicked the switches or, or changed the signals so that now people are on that track? And I don't know the answer to that. We yeah, may well. find out. We yeah. may find out. We may yeah. find out, you know, next... Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, you know, the interest levels are enormous, but um, can I mean, I we think, carry I on think, seeing that through to next year? I think year? the interesting thing is this relationship between horticulture and being outside in gardens and in the natural world. And horticulture can be intimidating, both in the amount there is to learn about it and in the horticultural, I was going to say establishment, because I don't think there's the conspiracy. I mean, I don't think anybody, there is anybody or, or, or any group of people. To, but, but it, the, you know, you can feel daunted by the whole establishment of the horticultural world, whether it's the trade or television or, you know, all the bodies that are involved. You, your magazine or whatever, uh, me. Uh, and <laughs> and clearly that's, that's not good and none of us want that. And so we have a job to do to, make, to get rid of that. But I think that if the, if the road in is, you know, anything from, from suddenly noticing dragonflies in the garden or, 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 or the shape of the clouds or... or, or just just the light that happens to fall at seven o'clock at a, one half of your garden um that's gardening you know that that that's as much gardening as knowing how to take a cutting and and my bugbear with British gardening has always been the obsession with mastering technique and process at the expense of your human response to it and actually. Without the human response, gardening becomes like a fridge or, 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 or you know, your there's a sort of the drainage system to your house. It, you know, somebody has to know how it works, but, but you don't need to, to, to use it. Uh, and mm. gardening without poetry and without magic is, is dull. I think it's dull. You know, I mean, I know how to do all kinds of things in gardening, but they're, they're a means to an end. They're not the end in itself. And I think what's, what I hope is that people have, have come in sideways and got the magic without necessarily knowing about the process. Whereas I think 
the problem with gardening, certainly in my lifetime, and this, this may not be true anymore, has been there's been you can't get the magic until you know the process. And that, that is just not true. I think that is breaking down. You know, you can see it through yeah. social media, through yeah. Instagram, just those yeah. lovely images. Of course, we know there's a yeah. lot behind it, but actually people kind of really buy into yeah. that. So I think it is easing. Um, I think things are changing. I mean, I, I guess I just was, was thinking we, we would end um, really about about the future. Mm. Um, obviously, you've recently become mm-hmm. a grandfather and uh, with, I'm sure, all the kind of well-being mm. and all the pleasures of that. But, um, you know, will George, do you think, garden? And actually, more importantly, do you think he'll recognise gardening as as being something more than a hobby? When he's old enough to garden, will gardening have attained a different sort of meaning for 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 people, for individuals, and for society? Well, obviously, I don't know. Um, uh, I think <laughs> no. that he. I mean, one of the, the worries I would have. For, for George in inverted commas, i.e. everybody who is one now, is that they will have access to an outdoor space where they can, they can do those things. The thing I hope is that he, he learns to, to love the natural world and love the rhythm of the seasons and to be nourished by it and therefore want to nourish it. Um, I don't... I don't worry too much if he becomes good at growing broad beans or roses. You know, I mean, he may, he may not. Uh, I'd like to think that he he wants to grow good food because I think that's one of the important aspects of health and and you know, it's particularly interest of mine. But but I hope we will be bringing up a generation of people who are aware of the possibilities of gardens as part of the rhythm of their own lives rather than as a hobby, rather than as a, an optional thing. You know, when I was 17, it was so left field for anybody else I knew in my world that, that it was embarrassing to talk about it. And I hope that it's just completely inclusive and just sort of rather in the same way that, that now maybe food is. You know, I think one of the wonderful things that people like Jamie Oliver have done is to make it inclusive and natural and normal. And my son's generation, sort of early 30s, are all good cooks. All, you know, they and their friends all cook really well. They know about food, they enjoy it, they like it. They, they're not frightened to really enjoy fish finger, a fish finger sandwich or to cook a Moroccan dish or whatever. They're, they're completely comfortable with it. And if we can get that with gardens, with the next generation down, then that will be wonderful. Do you think it could happen? I'll do my best, Lucy. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I do. I, I think, I think you have to have access. I think what lockdown has done has made people value their access to gardens. And we, you know, if population goes on increasing, and we keep space is not going to get any bigger, gardens are going to get smaller. It's going to get less access to gardens, and that is the worry. Is you need to be able to walk out into the garden in bare feet at six o'clock in the morning. And no communal garden will let you do that. You know, you need to be able to say, do you know what? I'm going to dig up the lawn. Or I'm going to, uh, I, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to plant this. Or, or and, and for that, you need to have privacy and, and ownership 
it could be shared ownership, it could be temporary ownership, but you need to own that that moment. And I think that that has to get harder because we have less and less space. So I have no answer to that. But I guess I, I know one thing, one area that we've been exploring on the programme and through the magazine is increasingly houseplants yeah. and bringing yeah, that yeah. life and that nurturing yeah. indoors. And I think yeah, you've, you've yeah, been leading on and, that. And, and that's been wonderful because suddenly you've crossed a boundary. You say, yeah, I want all that, but I'm going to have it indoors. Uh, you know, I live in a flat, but I've got 43 houseplants. Um, every windowsill, every surface covered with it. And, and uh, I think that's absolutely wonderful and great. And I, in fact, that was quite difficult. That was quite a difficult bridge for me to cross because until a few years ago, I associated houseplants with not being gardening, with non-gardening. It was because gardening was about soil and outside and weather. Um, and I had to unlearn that view and suddenly realize that, no, it's not. It's about connecting in the only way you can. If you've only got a windowsill, use it. And, uh, and, as, and as you know now, I have lots of houseplants, you know. Uh, and um, so I, that's something I've learned and, and I've picked up on, yeah. And we can see from the films coming through, the audience has amazing yeah, indoor do. spaces, and whether it's green walls. Well, some of the green walls have um, just been extraordinary. And, and yeah, they do. And I think that's also being driven by a younger age group. And of course, the beauty of being 25 is you have no fear. You don't care what Gardener's World say or the RHS or Gardener's World magazine or, or some boring old fart like me pontificating from a... You're going to do it because that's fun and that you've seen it and, you, and, and it's creative. And it's, you know, it's the spirit, it's the world that made London in 1981, 82, 83 so exciting when we were starting out in fashion is because we didn't know any boundaries. We just did it. And it's just doing it that is creative and exciting. As soon as you have to start understanding the rules and what you can't do and shouldn't do, then it gets dull. And I think, actually, that to my astonishment, the most creative area in gardening at the moment is probably houseplants. So there really is a good future. There is a future. <laughs> I, I'm not wholly optimistic. I think that um, there is always creativity to be expressed, how and where. I would hate to think that it was at the expense of being outdoors. Because to me, the, the, you know, you, there is this combination of earth and weather and plants is the magic that makes gardening so rich. So, so houseplants are one part of that equation. And that's a lot better than no part. But, but I'd like to see the other two in the mix as well. Perfect. That's where the poetry yeah. lies. And, and life without poetry... Is life in black and white. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And you can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time.